Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Scientists from really diverse disciplines, who all used to have a quite cynical view of human nature, have now moved to a much more hopeful view, a much more optimistic view of who we really are as a species. Now, I'm not saying that we're angels. I've never heard of a penguin, lock up another group of penguins and exterminate them. But then if you want to ask the question, what is so special about us as humanity? Well, we're not that smart. On an individual le level, if you have an intelligence test and you let a human toddler compete, With a pig, uh, usually the pig wins. If you do a boxing fight with a chimpanzee, well, you got to be very much, very afraid, I think. Now, what makes human beings special is that we have the ability to cooperate on a scale that other species just can't. Humans are the only species in the animal kingdom that blush. Uh, and the reason is that if you blush, you involuntarily give away your feelings. And so that helps to establish trust between people. And I think that understanding of what really makes us special is something that we really need right now, especially in a moment of crisis, to pull together and to cooperate. That is historian and author Rutger Bregman. And this is episode 341 of Better Than Yesterday. Hello, and thank you so very much for being here. I'm Osher Ginsberg, and this is Better Than Yesterday. This is a podcast that aims to help make today a little bit better than yesterday. That's it. That's what I'm here to do. On Mondays, I have a conversation with a guest. On Fridays, I have a conversation with you. Something you'll hear on this show and in every single show, all 340 interviews and however many, I think it's about 400 eps by now, you'll hear something you need to hear, and it'll help you make today better than yesterday. That's a guarantee. All right. Who am I? Well, I'm Osher Ginsberg. I'm a, a TV host and a, a podcasting guy and a book writing guy from Sydney, Australia. What else do I do? Oh, I've been doing this week. I've been riding bicycles a fair bit. I'm feeding a baby a lot. I've been using a Theragun, which is epic. I went into the shop for a heater. And I came out with a heater and a Theragun. I use both every day. 
<laughs> um, who else am I? I'm someone who will ask his wife very, 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 very late at night if she wouldn't mind ever so much just to roll over and um, crack my back for me. And she does because she's awesome. But yeah, that's who I am. And thank you for being here. Today on the show is Rutger Bregman. Uh, you can find him on Twitter, R-C-B-R-E-G-M-A-N, or RutgerBregman.com, R-U-T-G-E-R, Bregman.com. His new book is called Humankind, A Hopeful History. It's great. More about Rutger in a moment. Um, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed Friday's episode. Thanks for the people that did write in. And yeah, I hope you remember to take your meds. That show was all about remembering to take your meds and how to remember to take your meds. I do appreciate all the feedback that I'm getting on email. Thank you so much for letting me know where you're listening to the show. Send us your email at gmail.com is my email address, and you can find me on Instagram. Just take a photo of what you're looking at right now. Tag me on Instagram, and um, Haley will make sure I see it. She does a big screen gap crap screen cap of all the things and sends them to me so I can see them because I don't have Instagram on my phone because I'm a hopeless addict yeah anyway uh, thanks very much for also the feedback in the iTunes store that does help us a lot here at the show wherever you can rate and review this podcast please do it and um, if you can subscribe or follow if you're on Spotify that really really helps us out but the biggest number one most powerful thing you can do is just tell another person just find somebody in your life this week flick them a text Talk to them about the show and say, hey, this is a podcast you might get into. Here's some episodes I enjoyed. I'm about to recommend you a podcast, um, but I'll get to that in a moment. But it does help me a lot. If you can recommend a podcast, that'd be great. Thank you so much. I hope you're good. I hope, you know, whatever it is you're doing is good. How's your workout? It's good. Have you lost count of where you are in your sets? I hope not. Keep going. How's your laundry mission? It's good. Uh, how's the shopping? People keeping their distance? Are you washing your hands? Are you spritzing your fingers? How's the school run? Is it all right? Um, how's the commute? Is it okay? I hope it's all going. How's your gardening? How's your? I don't know what to do with myself now. My gardening. We've built the garden beds. I moved all the dirt. I don't know what to do now. <laughs> to be honest, what I, I what, tell you what I do? I grab Wolf and we go out the front and we visit the plants. Does that make me weird? I go out and visit the plants just to see how they're going. The lettuces are looking lovely today. I say things like that. Oh, honey, the lettuces are looking lovely today. And we picked a tomato off the vine and washed it off and gave it to Wolf. And he just, with his one tooth, just munged into it. But yeah, we go out there and then we go, we do some detective work. We try and find the grub that's into the pak choy. I'll have you, mate. I know you're hungry. I know you're trying to feed your family, but come on. So am I. So pick one plant because it's gone for the pack toy and then something else. I've gone for the sweet potato as well. So just pick one plant, mate. We'll talk about it. Anyway, I've been uh, on the bike a bit this week, so I've been digesting a lot of podcasts as I ride. And um, there's one that came my way. Someone recommended it to me, and I've, I've binged the whole season. It's a harrowing listen, but it's very, very good. It's called Running From Cops. Find it where you found this podcast. Running from Cops is what it's called. It goes a very long way to unpack the culture around policing and crime that exists in America and how the police forces in America ended up in this kind of souped-up, hyper-realistic, almost military unit. It was wild. The other night, Terminator 2 was on telly, and I'm, oh, I haven't watched this in ages. And at the end, there's a big final scene where, you know, spoiler alert, the cops take on the Terminator – it's like these LAPD guys roll up with pea shooters. I'm like, what? This is only 30 years ago, right? But 
the cops are just rolling up with these pew, 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 little, it's like crikey. You know, you look at any just like a regular cop in the States now and they look like they're, they're going into battle, you know, with like military-grade equipment, the kind of thing you'd see in, in the, the Gulf War or something. Anyway, uh, the podcast is it's intense. It's, it's really intense. There's some very harrowing audio in there. But basically, it breaks down the idea or basically how the idea of filming people who were having the worst days of their lives, probably at the lowest imaginable point of their life, how that became entertainment. And when that entertainment started rating and the demand and the hunger for particular kinds of crime to watch, chases, particular ethnicities getting arrested for particular kinds of crimes, people wanted to watch those things more. So that then had an effect on the policing practices of the police on camera and kind of created this self-fulfilling prophecy, giving almost an unrealistic view of what crime was actually happening in the streets versus what was actually depicted versus how often a traffic stop actually ended up in arrest or the perception of how many white criminals versus non-white criminals there were compared to the actual crime statistics. And then the general public sees this thing as if it's real and then reacts to it. Anyway, it's, it's, it's harrowing stuff. I thoroughly recommend it. I'm so freaking grateful we live in Australia. We are not without our problems, as is evidenced over the last few weeks and months of, of, of conversation around police practices in Australia. God, the last few days, oh my God, it's been harrowing. But it's fascinating to listen to. It's called Running From Cops. You'll find it where you find your podcasts. Um, right, so quick, before we get to Rutger Bregman. If conversations about humans and humanity uh, interest you, I would thoroughly encourage you to listen to episode 242 of this show with Kath Koshell. She's an exceptional human being who, I'll let the podcast explain it, but she's had to learn how to walk once, twice. She's had to learn how to walk three times in her life. I'll let her explain how. But in episode 242, Kath Koshell speaks with incredible power about her belief in human kindness. I basically left home with nothing but the clothes on my back. So had, you know, a hoodie and some jeans on. It was the middle of winter in Sydney. And I had no cash, credit card, food, water. And the rules were no help from immediate family or friends. So to survive, I had to accept help off strangers. So that's to travel to places. I needed someone to put me up wherever I went and so forth. So put this onto social media again and TV picked it up, which during the Olympics in 2016. I had offers from all around the world to help me. So I just said, you know, I've been through a bit, sort of broke my back once, lost my partner, broke my back again. I have this opinion that kindness is the way forward. I think we should all embrace that. Can anyone help me? Was the sort of crux of it. And then it just sort of went nuts. So I had offers from the US, UK, all around Australia, everyone wanting to help me and show me or prove to me or give that sort of affinity back to me that what I believed in is true. You can find that episode where you find your podcast. Just search for Kath Cashel in this very show. Right, so let me tell you about my guest today. Rutger Bregman is one of Europe's most prominent thinkers. Uh, he's 32 years old, he's Dutch, he's a historian and an author who's published six books on history, philosophy and economics. Rutger has twice been nominated for the prestigious European Press Prize for his journalism work at The Correspondent. And his work has also been featured in the Washington Post and the BBC. Rutger shot to fame on the back of his, I think it was his fifth book, Utopia for Realists, The Case for a Universal Basic Income, Open Borders and a 15-Hour Workweek. That book does what it says on the box, all right? 
he caused a massive stir at uh, Davos, the big kind of party slash, you know, where very rich people getting together to talk about how we're going to make the world a better place. Um, thing that happened in, in Switzerland a couple of months ago when he basically stood up there and said, right, so an auditorium full of people who flew private planes here so they could queue up to see David Attenborough talk to them about climate change. What the fuck? <laughs> you know, he's a fascinating cat. Um, so he really kind of exploded with, with that Davos uh, speech, which I would recommend you track down because it's pretty fantastic. His newest book is called Humankind. The short version of the book Humankind, Humankind a Hopeful History is what it's called. The short version of his thesis is that deep down, humans are pretty decent. And if you expect good things of people, they'll do good things. If you expect bad things of people, they won't let you down. It's an incredible read, utterly enlightening, incredibly well argued, very well researched. And if you're a fan of Gladwell, Pinker, Rosling or Harare, you'll get a massive kick. You'll get a massive kick out of this book. In this incredibly volatile, toxic and fearful, divided climate that we live in, there's never been a more important moment for us to remember that we, as a species, got where we got by cooperating with each other. And that somewhere deep down inside us, we're hardwired to help. I'll let Rutger take you by the hand and lead you deeper down that path. But let me tell you, I couldn't be more happy, more proud and more grateful that right now, this week, this moment is when we get to digest this conversation. He's an extraordinarily brilliant thinker and I adore speaking to him. I'm, I, as you hear me, you'll hear me fanboy over him because like... I did, as you know, I spent a lot of time in the Netherlands and um, I adore the Dutch. I adore the way they speak and they look at the world and he's no exception. And so it's a real kick for me to talk to him. If you like what you hear, he is on Twitter, RC Bregman, B-R-E-G-M-A-N or rutgerbregman.com, R-U-T-G-E-R-B-R-E-G-M-A-N.com. His new book is called Humankind, A Hopeful History. It's out now. Enjoy this catch up over the internet with Rutger Bregman. To open it right up, uh, you're in the Netherlands, mm -hmm. you're married. What is it that you would say that you do for a living? Because you do a lot of things, but how do you say it? <laughs> well, what I do for a living is I write. Uh, I write books. I've been trained as a historian, so that is my perspective. I, I sort of use history as my laboratory. I think one of the mo main lessons that we can learn from history is that things can be different. Now, that sounds maybe a little bit obvious, but sometimes we don't really seem to realize how different things can be. You know, nothing about the way we've organized our society and economy right now is inevitable. It can all change for the worse or for the better. So I've been mainly focusing on uh, some radical ideas that may seem, you know, pretty unrealistic right now, but may actually become reality in the future whether it's poverty, our cynical view of human nature, and sort of trying to use history to open people's minds and saying, you know, we can actually change the world. And, you know, the last five months of all of our lives is probably case in point 
Mm. You know, if I told you in my country, at least in Australia, which is a conservative government at the moment, mm -hmm. if I told you that seven months ago, the very same government said free childcare is something we can't afford, universal basic income is a socialist dream, mm -hmm. what are you talking about? There's no way this will ever happen. And here we are, essentially... Everyone's getting paid. No one's going to work. Childcare's free. Um, yeah. you know, it's really amazing, isn't it? Telehealth for everyone. Distance yeah. education for everybody. Yeah. So quickly, with the right amount of external pressure, things can change so fast. Yeah, exactly. It's so exciting to be living through these times, right? It's history in the making. Especially the first week of the crisis, it felt like every day was a year in terms of how quickly things are going. And now, you know, decisions are being made in hours or days that will have consequences for years or decades. So it's really important to pay attention now. And it's also really interesting that, I mean, I fully agree with you that just five years ago, ideas like Universal Basic Income, my previous book was about that, Utopia for Realists. I mean, people thought that I was crazy. You know, the idea wasn't really taken seriously uh, most of the time. But now it's really moved into the political mainstream, both in the US and Australia and Europe as well. So uh, it's interesting. It's, what's fascinating about your work is that you try to argue basically that our spirit of cooperation, our spirit of kindness, our spirit mm -hmm. of empathy is what got us here. Mm -hmm. Our spirit of cooperation, our, our, our ability to enroll another person in a story about how life could be better for both of us mm -hmm. has led us as a community to become the most dominant species on the planet. And yet anyone that doubts that is cast in this Pollyanna-ish, mm -hmm. yeah, if you give people money, they'll just sit around playing PlayStation. But the science doesn't show that, does it? Yeah. What has happened in the past 15 to 20 years is that scientists from really diverse disciplines, so anthropologists, archaeologists, sociologists, psychologists, you name it, who all used to have a quite cynical view of human nature, have now moved to a much more hopeful view, a much more optimistic view of who we really are as a species. Now, I'm not saying that we're angels. Obviously, we're not. We're capable of terrible things. You could even argue that in some ways... We can be the cruelest species in the animal kingdom, right? Think about wars or ethnic cleansing or genocides. I mean, I've never heard of a penguin that does those kind of things, right? Lock up another group of penguins and exterminate them. I mean, these are singularly human crimes. But then if you want to ask the question, why did we conquer the globe? You know, what is so special about us as humanity? Well, we're not that smart. You know, we're not that intelligent. On an individual le level, if you have an intelligence test and you let a human toddler compete, with a pig, then uh, usually the pig wins, you know, which is, uh, I mean, something you should keep in mind when you eat bacon, but that's another book. If we, uh, you know, if you ask the question, are we that strong? No, we're ne neither, you know, chimpanzees are way stronger. If you do a boxing fight with a chimpanzee, well, you got to be very much, very afraid, I think. Now, what makes human beings special is that we have the ability to cooperate on a scale that other species just can't. And our bodies are pretty much designed to do that. By evolution, you know, we have this unique ability to blush, for example. That was, uh, to me, that was one of the most striking things I discovered during my research is that humans are the only species in the animal kingdom that blush. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Uh, and the reason is that if you blush, you involuntarily give away your feelings. And so that helps to establish trust between people, right? And it's one of our secret superpowers. And I think that spirit or that understanding of what really makes us special is something that we really need right now, especially in a moment of crisis, to pull together and to cooperate.
It, it's interesting though, and I've talked about a lot of this on this show with my guests over the past few weeks. Mm-hmm. The very things you're talking about, the spirit of cooperation, the spirit of helping each other out. Many people are discovering how it actually makes them feel inside for the first time during this period of lockdown where we're stuck inside and we've only got our immediate neighbors and we start thinking about who cares for us and how can we care for others. Yeah. You know, human beings are meaning-seeking creatures. We like money, obviously, that's good. But in the end, I think that most people will care more about meaning, living a life that, you know, actually matters. And I think one of the great tragedies of our time is that there are so many people working in jobs that they don't really care about. You know, we've got evidence, new evidence actually, from two Dutch economists who did a huge poll in 40 countries and found that around 25% of people in the modern workforce think that their own job is socially meaningless. Or the other academic term that we have is uh, sort of they think they have a bullshit job. That is one of the great tragedies of our time. You know, just think about the extraordinary waste of talent. So many people working in jobs they don't care about in the financial sector, in marketing or, you know, making algorithms to let people click on more ads. It's this big tragedy. And then this crisis comes along and people are like, God, I just want to help. I just want to do something useful, right? I don't want to browse Facebook anymore. I don't want to send emails to people I don't like. I don't want to write reports no one's ever going to read. I want to be of value of use. So I, I think that maybe in the long run, this crisis could have, have an effect here sort of to cause a shift in our values because we've i mean we've also been publishing all these lists of the so-called vital and essential jobs around the globe so i mean just imagine that you're young right now i don't know 18 or 19 years old and you're thinking about what you should study well in the 80s and the 90s everyone wanted to go to silicon valley and wall street and maybe now that's going to be different maybe now they want to become a doctor or a nurse or a cleaner or a garbage collector or a teacher right like have a real vital job it's uh, interesting how different the values of these jobs in our society have so quickly mm-hmm. shifted within mm-hmm. all of us. And, and now we're being forced to recognize the working conditions and the pay that we are asking these people to live with and put up with to do jobs mm-hmm. that we probably wouldn't want to do, but they're now being classified as the society will collapse if we don't have clean poles on a bus to hold on to. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's also the qu- question of motivation, right? Why do you do what you do? So the psychologists make a distinction between two forms of motivation. On the one hand, you have extrinsic motivation. You do something because someone says you got to do it or you do it before the money or before or because you want to get a good grade in school, for example. But you also have intrinsic motivation. You do something just because you like it because you think it's important, because you want to help other people. It's something that comes inside of you, right? What psychologists have found in the past couple of decades is that these two forms of motivation are both powerful, but they don't work together that well. You know, So if you rely more on intrinsic motivation, sort of on incentives, on money, etc., then people sort of lose their intrinsic motivation. They, they don't really know why they do something anymore. If you rely more on uh, intrinsic motivation, you can, I think, move to a different kind of society. One of the great tragedies, again, of the past couple of decades is that we sort of lost this this internal feeling of creativity and sort of knowing why you do what you do. Because we've really become this performance-driven society where everything is about your LinkedIn profile and your grades and how much money you make, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not saying all of that is unimportant, but we've lost something along the way, I think. 
one of the interesting things about your work is, and what differentiates you is you back it up mm-hmm. with evidence, uh, which I, I'm a, I'm a big fan of science. I'm a big fan of evidence. <laughs> uh, I do love it. Even the airy fairy stuff, like I've practiced gratitude in my day as part of managing my mental health, but that's been proven to rewire your neuronal pathways. So your brain yeah, actually yeah. starts to see the world. In, as There's in great mo- science to back that up. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's called praying basically. Well, I I thought that was really funny is that now you have all these studies that say gratitude works. It's been proven by science. And my father is a Christian minister. You know, I'm I'm personally not religious, but I was talking about this with him and he's like, yeah, we call that praying. (laughs) So, well, let me ask you about that. We're talking about the evolution and how our brains evolved. Is there a part of our brain that evolved and is wired for that kind of God idea or the spiritual idea? There is some evidence of that. Uh, So if you look at nomadic hunter-gatherer tribes, they certainly are spiritual. I mean, anthropologists have studied nomadic hunter-gatherer tribes all over the globe. And this is relevant because we know that for 95% of our history, we were nomadic hunter-gatherers. The interesting thing is, though, that their religion is quite different from sort of the later monotheistic religions. They don't really believe in big gods. They basically think that God is everywhere, that God is in everything. It's sometimes called animism. It's the idea that basically everything is spiritual and everything has a soul. I think that is sort of the standard religion of, of human beings. It's only later when civilizations develop, you know, when we started living in villages and cities, that also these big gods arrive on the scene. And uh, there's actually an interesting theory about this, why, why this happened. Sort of to explain it, we have to start with, with our eyes. So human, human beings have really special eyes. I can see that you're looking at me right now. If you would have been a chimpanzee, then I couldn't have really seen it because human beings have white around their eyes, right? So you can sort of follow our gazes, uh, which makes it easier to trust each other. You know, if you can actually look each other in the eyes, it's easier to come to some kind of understanding. All the other primates, all the other primates in the animal kingdom, they have dark around their eyes, so you can't follow their gazes. That's true for bonobos, chimpanzees, orangutans, you name it. So this is really special and peculiar about human beings. They're sort of called the cooperative eyes. Now, when we lived as nomadic hunter-gatherers, we lived in these small groups, and then you, you, know, you met other people. You, know, you were not tweeting to them or, you know, uh, I don't know, sending WhatsApp messages. You could relate to them and, and see them and see them in the eye. Then when people started living in bigger groups, this didn't work anymore, right? You couldn't sort of follow everyone anymore. So in order to establish trust, this is one theory that I really like from anthropology. We needed someone basically to be high in the sky and look down upon us. Sort of the big eye, the all-seeing eye, God, basically. It's interesting if you look at different religions, how God is represented, they often use sort of a, a big eye, right? Because... Yeah, in a small group, people just look after each other. But then when you have the anonymity of city life or, I don't know, a big hierarchical society, then maybe you need someone else, like some superpower to make sure that people can trust each other. I must admit, this is just one exciting, interesting theory. There's a lot of scientific research being done on this right now. But it's an interesting possibility that that is one of the reasons why we started believing in this big God. It's what your father was saying as well, in that there's so many parallels in various religions and so many through lines that these various religions just have different ways of characterizing 
the same concepts of how we treat each other, how we are towards each other, how we are towards our own community for the good mm -hmm. of the own community. Sure, other religions have different threats if you don't follow those rules, and that's fine. And mm -hmm. Some of them are pretty strict about what you can and can't put in your mouth for mm -hmm. whatever reasons, but mm -hmm. there seems to be those through lines to try and describe what it is you're talking about, this idea that ultimately on the inside, we're there to help each other. What's the most recent science that backs this up? I think it would be most interesting to start with the psychological evidence we have. So you can ask the question, what would happen if I would be drowning or if I would be attacked in the street and a lot of people would see it? You know, would people actually help me or not? For a long time, psychologists believe that actually if a lot of people saw something like that happening, then you were in trouble because then they'd say, you know, it's not my responsibility. Other mm. people are seeing this as well. You know, I don't, I don't have to do something right now. I'm going to grab a coffee. The story of Kitty Genovese is it's, it's well known, the bystander effect of the, yeah, if enough yeah. people see something, no one's going to do anything. Yeah. Yeah. So Kitty Genovese was a young woman in New York in the early sixties who was killed and supposedly 37 men had seen her being stalked by her assailant in the middle of the night and no one had done anything. You know, no one had even called the police. And this became a very famous story. It ended up in all the psychology textbooks. So if you're a student in psychology today, you know, there's a big chance that you'll, you'll learn about this. And yeah, it was sort of the example of what we later called the bystander effect, that people don't do anything if they're like, you know, someone else can, it's their responsibility, not mine. Now, interestingly, even though we had a lot of science on this, a lot of laboratory experiments, you know, where they sort of set up a situation where a subject comes in, there's a small emer an emergency, and they just try to study, do people actually do something? There seemed to be a lot of evidence that, indeed, they don't really uh, help most of the time. But now there's a new generation of psychologists that has, uh, has asked the question, yeah, but is that really reliable? Can't we just study what happens in real life? I mean, we live in these big brother societies these days. There are cameras everywhere. I mean, there are downsides to that, but there are upsides as well. Maybe you can just study the evidence, how real people behave in real life in, you know, real emergencies. And so there's one psychologist, her name is Marie Lindegaard, who's just published this path-breaking study in American Psychologist, the most important journal for psychologists. And so she studied a big database of a thousand videos from Copenhagen, Amsterdam, London, and Cape Town, and found that actually in 90% of all cases, people help each other. So that was an extraordinary founding because it's the most powerful evidence you can have, right? How people behave in real life. And it's the complete opposite of what scientists have believed for a long time. I mean, Cape Town and London are very different cities, but you see exactly the same phenomenon. People help each other. And actually, if more people see something happening, it's more likely that you'll be helped because people find support in each other. So that's just one of those examples that, you know, it's just completely gone in the other, other direction now. Th then what benefit is there in keeping the myth going? Because the bystander effect, that's sold a lot in America. I used to live in America. I mm -hmm. sold a lot of concealed handguns and a lot of mace key rings, you know. That sold mm -hmm. a lot of self-defense courses and sold a lot of CCTV yeah. around your house. What's the benefit of keeping that kind of myth going? Look, if we don't trust each other, then you need those in power. You need hierarchy, you need kings, you need generals, you need the police, you need an army. Because then you, you know, people would just have some kind of war of all against all, right? 
if you actually do trust each other, then you can move to a very different kind of society, a much more egalitarian society, a much more genuinely democratic society. And uh, obviously those in power don't like that. So for centuries, you could even say for millennia, they've always been very wary of this idea that most people deep down are pretty decent because they know that if people actually start to believe it, that they're in trouble. So yeah, there's been a, for centuries, I think there's been a huge amount of, well, you could say propaganda by those in power to say, you know, you can't trust your fellow human beings. You can't trust them. You know, you need us. And this goes back all the way to the ancient Greeks, to Orthodox Christianity. You know, think about St. Augustine talking about the concept of original sin, or you study the Enlightenment philosophers, Adam Smith, David Hume, Thomas Hobbes. You know, again and again, this idea comes back that people are selfish. And if you look, at, I think, at the past 40, 50 years of our current sort of capitalist system, one of the central dogmas has been that, you know, greed is good. People deep down are selfish and just deal with it. And I think the results have not been good. Rising anxiety, loneliness, people wondering about what the meaning of life is, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm just saying that, we can turn that around. And that's not only idealistic or naive. No, it's actually backed up with really good science. Yes, I, I agree. And yet there must be something about why it perpetuates. There must be something in us that likes to know that someone's in charge, mm -hmm. that someone's got this. I think there's some evidence for that as well. And this is what psychologists call the negativity bias. So let's put it like this. Evil is just stronger than good. I can't make it any better than that. It, is, it makes a stronger impression on us. And there's an evolutionary advantage, uh, a reason for that. Just imagine you're a nomadic hunter-gatherer. It's better that you're afraid once too often of a spider or a snake than once too, how do you say that in English? Too less? Too... Yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, a negativity bias sort of in a nomadic hunter-gatherer environment is a good thing, right? It helps you to survive. But now we live in a society where we're being bombarded by the news on a daily basis about all kinds of horrible things that happen around the globe. And it just has a bigger impression on us. So how can the good win? It can only win with an overwhelming force, right? And this is often what life is like as well. I mean, you must have experienced this with your podcast. You get like a hundred nice reviews on, I don't know, iTunes or something like that. And it's like, oh, that's nice. And then you get that one nasty email. It's like, yeah, you're such a bad podcaster and you keep nagging about that one, right? It's just how it works. So you need a hundred compliments to survive one piece of criticism. Yeah. It's just uh, how the human brains works. So when we have this negativity bias, when we're looking at the world, that makes us, and we're seeing it right now, that makes us mm -hmm. as humans align with a little more and vote for and put in power the kind of strongman leader because it mm -hmm. makes us feel safer? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Espe yeah, and in a... In a society that has become more anxious, more inegalitarian, where trust between people is declining. Yeah, you're, you're calling for strongmen. But then if you look at healthier societies, like for example, Scandinavia, that are more egalitarian, more democratic, you know, you have a very different kind of dynamic. I mean, if you think about the question, how do we sort of change the dynamic? I think the most important thing to keep in mind here is that what you assume in other people is what you get out of them. So if you assume that most people are selfish, you know, that they're corrupt and that they're animals or beasts or whatever, that civilization is only a thin veneer and that deep down we're all monsters, then that's what you're going to get. How you treat people, that's how they will treat you. It's, it can become the self-fulfilling prophecy. If you turn that around and if you actually assume 
that most people are pretty decent and want to cooperate and want to find meaning in their lives and help, etc. I think you can have a very different kind of school system, a very different kind of workplace, a very different kind of democracy. Yeah, where people sort of will become the kind of persons that your theory presupposes. In a way, you can sort of choose what you believe. I'm trying to think of a society that exists on the planet right now where this is the case that I have experienced. Mm -hmm. And I think in many ways, Japan is one thing that comes to mind. Yeah. It's an assumption that, for example, the first time I went skiing there, like 15 years ago, my brother and I, we, uh, how should we say this? We had a few too many sakis. I was still drinking, baby. I don't drink anymore. <laughs> we left our snowboards outside the hotel. We forgot we left them outside. We woke up in the morning going, yeah. holy shit, our snowboards. We left our snowboards. We went outside, still there. And yeah, nobody yeah. had touched them. As a society, they just assume no, no one steals anything, so it's fine to leave it around. Yeah, yeah. Now, in Japan, you can leave your iPad in the metro in the morning and then come back in the evening and it's still there. You know, it's, uh, I've been there for a week and it was an extraordinary experience. I, at one point, you know, I was giving a talk at a university there and uh, my wife, she's a photographer, so she was taking photos all day and she, she would meet up at the university that night. But she had gone to the wrong university. So she was there and was a little, feeling a little bit lost. And so she asked someone the question like, you know, can you help me or where, where, do, you, where do I need to go? And um, this guy's English wasn't very good, but he said, you know what, I'll help you follow me. And so like, I don't know, for 45 minutes or for 50 minutes, he took her like in four metros, et cetera, and, uh, and subways and uh, brought her to the right university. He said, all right, goodbye. It's like, <laughs> that's unimaginable that that would ever happen in the Netherlands or I think in Australia as well. So there has to be something inside us because what, you know, I've been talking a bit about this on this show. There's got to be something mm. inside us that responds to doing an act of kindness to a stranger that drives mm -hmm. that, surely. When it comes to Japan, you also have to take into account, obviously, the cultural context, right? It's a more, much more collectivist culture. So the power of shame is also much stronger than it is, I think, in, uh, in more Western societies. Maybe another interesting example here is how they set up some institutions in Norway. And in, in the book, I talk about how Norwegian prisons are organized. And that's very counterintuitive because... I mean, let's be honest, it's quite easy to assume the best in your friends, right? It's quite easy to assume the best in your co-workers or in your neighbors or whatever. That's not a very revolutionary, courageous act. But can we actually take a step further, right? Can we also assume the best in our enemies or in strangers on, or even in, you know, people who've done horrible things? Like, I don't know, if you've gone to prison because you've murdered someone else or tortured someone else or raped someone else. I mean, can you do that as well? Now, what they've done in Norway is, is it really crazy thing or very counterintuitive thing. So here you have these prisons and you look at them and they don't look like prisons at all. So for example, you've got Bastoy, which is a small island to the south of uh, Oslo. And uh, it's basically like this pacifistic utopian community. It's self-reliant. They grow their own food. They have their own cinema. They have their own music studio. They make a lot of music together with the guards. The guards don't even wear uniforms, by the way. They have their own music label, which is called Criminal Records. Two of the inmates have participated in Norwegian Idols. Basically, the only punishment that they get is that, you know, they can't get out, right? It's still a prison in that sense. But apart from that, it's sort of this mini society where they sort of try to create better human beings. Now, obviously, this is very counterintuitive because if someone has done something horrible, you'd want, I don't know, it's understandable that people want revenge or something like that. 
But if you look at the statistics, if you look at the numbers here, the science, then actually the Norwegian prison system is the best in the world. Criminologists are always really interested in one number, which is the recidivism rate, sort of the chance that someone will commit another crime once he or she gets out of prison. And that number is nowhere as low as in Norway. You know, it's uh, actually there's there's quite some evidence that Norwegian prisons save money because if you go to prison, then you basically become a better person. And, you, you know, the chances that you'll get a job will go up and you start paying taxes, et cetera, et cetera. So the state actually gets a return on the investment. Now, if you look at the American prison system, for example, it's the complete opposite. So it has a very high recidivism rate. People go in there for small offenses and come out like hardened criminals. So it's basically like universities for more crime. Taxpayers are paying for more crime. That's basically what the prison system is doing there. And uh, that costs a lot of money in the long run, even though that gives you this feeling of vengeance, right? Because it, these are horrible places. But in the long run, yeah, you're paying for it yourself. So I think that's sort of an example of that Assuming the best in someone else, especially those who are far away from you, takes real courage. You really need to use your rationality here. It's, it doesn't always feel that intuitive. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. We're definitely in a time when there are very, very powerful world leaders assuming the worst and playing factions of society off each other. There's an interesting concept uh, I heard being talked about the other day that for the first time in history, the number one enemy of Americans is other Americans. It's not huh. another country, you know. Yeah. A Republican feels it's a Democrat and a Democrat feels it's a Republican. And a Libertarian thinks it's everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is the dark side of our capacity for friendliness. So on the one hand, it's like, okay, great. We are this species that's so good at cooperating and working together. Uh, biologists literally talk about survival of the friendliest, right? Which means that for millennia, I was actually the friendliest among us who had the most kids. And so had the biggest chance of passing on their genes to the next generation. But then there's a real dark side to that because friendliness can morph into tribal behavior where you only care about your own group, right? And your own culture. And that supposedly is so much better than all the others. And this is also, it's just one of the dark facts about our species is that we do the most horrible things sometimes in the name of comradeship and of loyalty and of friendship. If you ask the question, why were the German soldiers still fighting so hard in 1945 and, you know, the end of 1944? Why well, it was clear they were going to lose the war. 
Well, psychologists have done a lot of interviews with prisoners of war, and they found the same answer again and again. These soldiers were fighting for their friends, you know, for their comrades, and they didn't want to let them down. Now, this doesn't excuse anything, and, and I mean, it's obviously not the only mechanism at play here. But it is a, a telling fact about our species, and it's something to really keep in mind here, that there's a dark side to our capacity for friendliness as well. How can we tell, though, if we are slipped into that dark side? Because if we're in it and we look around and everyone feels the same way we do, and yeah, everyone, yeah, they're saying that thing about those people over there who go to that weird building and kneel down and pray and do all kinds of weird stuff, and I feel right feeling I'm better than them. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. What are some signs that we might be slipping into that? Huh. You know... Don't trust yourself too much and be aware of your own biases. I always love this concept of bullshit mountain. You know that? No, tell me. So there's this graph that goes around the internet sometimes. So on the one hand, you have the y-axis, right? The, the straight up and down one, yeah. Which is sort of how smart you think you are, how much you know about a certain subject. And then on the, on the x-axis, it's sort of the amount of time that has passed, how much time you've actually studied the thing. And then the graph goes like this. So... It goes up very quickly. You're like, oh, I'm, I'm reading a book about this. I've seen something on YouTube. Oh, I'm an expert. I know so much about this. And then you do a little bit more work and then, oh, fuck, I don't know. I, I, what was I told? I know nothing. God, there's so much more to learn. I know nothing. And then you're in the valley, right? You know nothing. And then you start studying it more and it goes up very slowly again. But it yeah. never really reaches Bullshit Mountain again. Now, if you watch a talk show, Pretty much everyone is on Bullshit Mountain, you know, on television, etc. Everyone is like, oh, I've, I've learned something. I heard something, blah, blah, blah. I've seen something on YouTube. I just have to talk about it for three minutes. So who cares? You know, I don't have to be an expert. This is something you have to be really wary about because you never really know when you're on Bullshit Mountain because Bullshit Mountain is, I mean, it's a great place to be. You, you're there and you're like, God, I know so much about the world. It's only later that you realize I was actually on Bullshit Mountain. All right, I think what you're describing is the Dunning-Kruger effect. I think that's yeah, yeah. I think that's what it's called. And anyone who's been vegan for three days will know exactly what that is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, I've, I've been vegan for nearly 20 years, man, but I definitely you know, I see other people or anyone that starts CrossFit or anyone that, you know, <laughs> any, anyone that gets into making their own kombucha or something the first yeah. month. Or joining a new church, you know, and they're evangelical uh -huh. about it when they're just almost like a um, missionary. They're almost like spreading mm -hmm. the word because yeah, they're yeah, just yeah, yeah, fired yeah. up about it. And then they kind of go, hang on a second, I'm giving 10% of my money to this church. And well, how come he gets to fly in a private plane? And what? <laughs> hang on, what? <laughs> and then, yeah, yeah. Then, the, uh, then that yeah. all kind of kicks in yeah. a little later on. You are somebody that has... You know, in a time when it seems that pessimism is the easiest way to go, you know, we've got less than eight years to get on our carbon emissions. Otherwise, we are all 100% mm -hmm. fucked. There's no question about that, you know, and it's really easy to go, oh, well, fuck it. I'm just going to mm -hmm. buy another jet ski and off I go, you know, because there's nothing I can do. How do you personally, Rutger, how do you... And, Bear in mind, people should understand, you live in a country below sea level. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know. I mean, it's not even for certain that my grandchildren, if I get any, will be able to live here in the Netherlands. I mean, yeah. we're looking at a possible sea level rise of two, three meters if we really have bad luck. And, you know, last year I, I interviewed a lot of uh, experts on the matter of what we can handle. And they're like, you know, we can probably handle two meters, maybe three. But after that, you know, we probably got to go to Germany. So maybe you got to 
make sure that your your kids actually uh, know how to speak German. I mean, my German is pretty much non-existent, so I, it would be problematic for me. <laughs> no, but that's a real thing there. I always like to think that cynicism is another word for laziness. Because if you say, you know what, it's never going to work out. We're wrecking the planet anyway. I'm just enjoying the time, you know, that I have and while it all lasts. It's just a, an excuse for doing nothing, right? And I, I sometimes feel that you, you encounter this kind of cynicism both on the right and on the left. You know, on the right, people often say, you know, people are just selfish, not going to work out. And then on the left, you have sometimes these environmental activists who are like, yeah, but people are a virus, you know, or a plague and we're mother nature will, will take its vengeance and, you know, it's hopeless anyway. I think they're basically making the same argument. You know, it's the same lazy, cynical argument. In the book, I tell one story of what happened on Easter Island, because that's often seen as a metaphor for our future. Easter Island is this very remote place, the most remote island that we know of, you know, in the middle of the Pacific. It's the one with the big stone heads, yeah? Exactly, where they make this fascinating stone heads. And for a long time, what scientists believed is that this civilization had destroyed itself, basically. That they had become so obsessed with producing all these stone heads that they, you know, cut all the trees, you know, for transport and, and to make them. That at some point, you know, all the trees were gone and it became harder to get food and there was soil erosion, et cetera, et cetera. Then a civil war broke out. They all became cannibals. So when the first European explorers arrived in Easter Island, they found a civilization that was already dying. This is a story that has been taught for a long time and it's, it's always been described as a metaphor for our future. Look what the people in Easter Island did. They destroyed their environment and they killed their civilization. And this is our future as well, if we go on like this. You know, we're destroying our, uh, our environment and, you know, a couple of decades from now, we'll all be cannibals, right? I'm not saying that's not a possibility. I mean, I'm very worried about climate change. I'm very worried about the extinction rate of species around the globe. But the history of Easter Island is actually quite different. So new scientists have looked at the evidence and have actually found that what really happened there is a, is a story of human resilience. So yes, the trees were gone at some point, but then they came up with new agricultural methods. Uh, we've now sort of made new studies of the first descriptions that the European explorers made. One of them was a Dutch guy, Jacob Rogeveen. You probably can't pronounce that, Rogeveen. <laughs> uh, Ro Rogeveen. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Can Close. you pronounce my name, by the way, Rutger? <laughs> Rutger. <laughs> Almost there. I learned how to say Schiermonichog. I learned how to say that island because I went up there. <laughs> well, that, that's very good. Anyway, so this Dutch explorer came and he basically described the population that was quite healthy and relaxed, etc. But later scholars didn't give him much attention because, you know, all the attention went to James Cook, who came there later and um, who was a bit more pessimistic. We're familiar with his work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Actually, what, what researchers now believe is that indeed Easter Island was basically destroyed, but not by the people itself, but by colonialism and infection diseases, right? So when all these plagues came to Easter Island that they had no immunity for, right? People just started dying off very quickly. And then the slave traders came, you know, in the 19th century, the Peruvian slave traders, there's a terrible history of blackbirding there. That is sort of the real reason for the decline of Easter Island. But if you look at the story itself, it's really a story of hope and of resilience and of how people can come up with new solutions when problems grow. And I think that could also be our story as a species. Obviously, climate change is like this exponential problem, but solutions can also grow exponentially, right? And that's not a guarantee, 
But it is a reason to get out of bed in the morning and to try to play your part, right? You couldn't have hit the nail on the head any better, man. We spoke earlier about what you assume out of people is what you get out of them. And um, I live right by the beach here in Sydney and there's a beach nearby and they were having some issues with uh, the physical distancing and trying to help people from just don't go to the beach. It's a you know sunny day. We're trying to keep the numbers down. They sent the fucking riot squad. They didn't send a council ranger. They didn't send someone with a car park torch going, no, not today. They sent the riot squad. And what do we need to know about a society? Because Australia can be very much like that. Australia very much can be that. What would you say to people about, for people to say, well, if we send anybody else, no one will pay attention. What would you say, you know, if we want to keep people away from the beaches, are you saying that if we just trust people, if we let them know the right amount of reasons and the right reasons why they should look after each other, that they just won't go? You know, I think that we have to make laws and rules for the 99% and not just for the 1%. And so often what we do is we make all these kind of regulations because we're so worried that there will just be a couple of persons who, you know, will rig the system or something like that. And then everyone has to suffer because of those rules and regulations. It's a little bit the same as in your own life, right? So sometimes people ask me the question, Rutger, you have this trusting view of other human beings. Aren't you afraid to be conned, right? That you'll be ripped off if you trust someone else, right? That happens. And it's true. I mean, there are professional con men and women out there and they can do their work because human tr- human beings trust each other most of the time. You know, psychologists call it truth default bias. We are sort of instinctively inclined to believe each other. And again, this is one of the reasons for our success as a species. I mean, just imagine... How can you ever build a pyramid or a spaceship or whatever if people continuously think, oh, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if I can trust you, right? Or if they immediately sort of want to have a contract for everything, like pass me the salt and then, yeah, I'll make up the contract, right? So that we can, that doesn't work. So you have to trust each other most of the time. But that also means that you have to accept some collateral damage because there's a small minority of people out there who are sociopaths or psychopaths or, I don't know, have been damaged in their life in some way. And I think you have to accept that. There's one book I wrote recently that I can recommend to every, everyone called The Confidence Game by Maria Konnikova. She's a psychologist who sort of specialized in the tricks that all these professional con men use. Uh, she was interviewed and asked the question, but Maria, aren't you now really wary? Have you, haven't you become really afraid? Because you know what they can do, right? And she said, you know what? I realize that I probably have to accept that I'll be ripped off a couple of times, you know, real good. <laughs> in my life and that that is uh, the right price to pay for a whole life where I can trust most of the people around me. And then if you ask the question, well, but I've never been ripped off, I've never been conned, well, maybe you should see a therapist, right? Because maybe there's something wrong with your basic attitude to life. Maybe you're not trusting enough of other people. When you, you said earlier that if we do expect the best of each other, we can build a new society. Uh, I've heard you talk and saying we clearly, the values that got us here, the values of competition, the emphasis of competition, the emphasis of, of profit, the emphasis of exploiting, whether it be an environment or a people to get a profit or a gain for a, a smaller amount of people, those values can't serve us as we move forward. What kind of society can we build? if we do expect the best out of each other? Hmm. So I think we would move to a society that relies more on solidarity and cooperation. And I think it's just best to look at 
a couple of case studies here because there are already a lot of people out there who already have this view of human nature who are not like me, you know, this armchair guy who just writes books, etc. But, you know, actually put these ideas in practice. So if you look at organizations, for example, how would you organize the workflow if you have a more hopeful view of human nature? Well, the first thing you realize is that maybe you, you don't need as much hierarchy on the workplace, right? Maybe you don't need all those managers and bureaucrats and administrators. Maybe you can actually work with self-directed teams, you know, who on a democratic basis make their own choices. I've got one case study in the book of one of the most successful healthcare organizations in the world that's based in the Netherlands. It's called Buurtzorg, Neighborhood Care. And uh, what they've done since 2006 is that, well, they've basically ditched all the managers they work in self-directed teams of around 11, 12 nurses who make their own decisions. You know, they decide when, you know, about their schedule. They make their decisions about who they want to hire. And the fascinating thing is that even though, you know, when they started, everyone said, you know, it was crazy. And the government was really against the idea. And insurers were saying, you know, we can't give you any money. But they went along anyway. And now it's the most successful organization we have here. So they've got 15,000 employees and they deliver better health care at a cheaper price. Right? So this is like win, win, win. And it's a big, uh, how do you say this? Fuck you in the direction of all management <laughs> and healthcare because it can actually work. But at, at the core of it, there's a defining goal that all these people ascribe to, right? Exactly. I mean, it's just delivering care of high quality. This is something that we so often do in our so-called knowledge economy. We try to make simple things more complex. And that's actually relatively easy. And it's pretty difficult to make complex things a bit more easy to understand, right? So if you t think about healthcare, what is good healthcare? Has that really changed since the 1930s? Good nursing, for example? No, obviously it's not. You're, you're trying to help someone to the best of your ability who's in a difficult situation, right? And that takes love and attention and care, etc. That hasn't changed a lot. I mean, we've got all these people who are obsessed with innovation and disruption and, and changing things and blah, blah, blah. In these kind of fields, continuity is often what we really need here and to make things a little bit more simple. Complexity is in the interest of those in power. You know who really love complexity? Bankers and accountants, they love complexity because that's how they earn their money, right? To make things as complex as possible so that only they understand it so they can you know, do their jobs that are not very meaningful. I think that often we, we should try and move to much simpler systems where we sort of focus on what actually works. And I know that's actually difficult because that's the paradox. It's relatively difficult to make things more simple, but the rewards are, are pretty good. You look at the world in a very plain way. I adore speaking with you because you remind me so much of my Dutch friends. And uh, <laughs> there's something I just so, I loved about the culture of your country. And I don't know if it was the in, speaking to me in, in English as a second language where everything was just so very plain and just very, <laughs> and just very stark yeah. and matter of fact. And it was very much, there it is, what are we going to do about it? And yeah. that was it, which I which I adored. They call it Dutch directness. I, I adore it. I adore <laughs> it because it, let, it allows you to just kind of get the fuck on with the fixing it or the solution or being able to move past a, a problem. You're a smart person and you don't get invited to Davos if you're mm -hmm. not a smart person. You are a fucking mm -hmm. CEO. You're a billionaire. You've built something. You're in charge of a workforce of 400,000 people. You clearly are a clever, clever person. How do you personally... Rutger, how do you deal with the idea of speaking with someone who is so very aware of the exploitation their company might be doing, the environmental damage that their private jet might be taking them to Switzerland, mm -hmm. and yet 
being first in line to see David Attenborough talk about climate change? Like, how mm-hmm. do you not slap your forehead and go, come on, man? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you personally deal with that? Well, there's so much to say about that. In the first place, I would sort of take issue with describing people in Davos as the really smart people. To be honest, most of the people that I thought are really smart that I've met in my life have often been failures in terms of, you know, how much money they earn or they didn't go to great universities, etc. So often, you know, if I see someone that says, you know, I went to Ivy League University and I'm making this amount of money, you know, usually they're not that smart, to be honest. They just learn to play along, to go along in the system, right? But that doesn't necessarily make you a very creative and smart person. So I think that's what Davos is like as well, is that they're just like, yeah, this is just the way the world is and who cares? It's just... uh, On the other hand, it's also, you would maybe expect that if you go to Davos, that there's some kind of big conspiracy, right? All these elites coming together, thinking about how they can be even richer than they are already. That's actually not the case. You go there and they're really friendly. You know, here are nice people who genuinely believe that their philanthropy is going to change the world. Yeah, that they don't have to worry about how their business model is or how they mistreat their warehouse workers or that they're evading taxes, etc. And that they just arrived in their private jets. They just don't think about it. I know it's like these have these two brain compartments where, I don't know, something like that. So um, I guess this is one of the paradoxes of my book is that on the one hand, I'm arguing that people have evolved to be friendly. On the other hand, I'm saying that that is exactly the problem because progress so often comes from people who are unfriendly, who are willing to be a little bit direct, right? And say what, what's really going on and uh, go against the status quo and don't worry about being found nasty or difficult. Again and again, if you look at the heroes of the 18th and the 19th and the 20th century, it always starts with people who are dismissed as unrealistic and unreasonable and nasty. And then their ideas start moving from the mainstream to the center. So uh, that's also why I believe that real change doesn't start in Davos, right? Because everyone's so friendly there to each other, you know? Yeah, yeah. You're great. You're great. Well, maybe you're not, right? So how do we, as as people who at the very least own a smartphone, you know, where, and if you're listening to this podcast, you are already in a 1% somewhere because you have mm. probably clean water, electricity, shelter, and enough spare money and spare time to own a smartphone and listen to a, you know, you've got an hour to listen to a podcast. So clearly something's going all right for you. How do we make change then? I think that a small group of determined people can have an incredible amount of influence. And it's really what you see if you look at the history of the 20th century as well. At the end of the Second World War, everyone believed in sort of the big state, that we needed a strong welfare state. Everyone was a a Keynesian back then, you know, a follower of the British economist John Maynard Keynes, who believed that the government need to invest, 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 right? Back then, there was a small group of people who disagreed. For example, the American economist Milton Friedman and the Austrian economist Friedrich von Hayek. And they said to each other, we're the minority right now. We're like the freedom fighters. We actually want a different system. So they called themselves neoliberals. They were for, you know, privatizations, free markets. They believe that you really have to sort of start with the idea that most people are basically selfish and then design everything around that. And they already believe that in the 50s. And they said to each other, you know what, we just got to prepare for the next crisis. You know, we got to develop our ideas, build think tanks, institutions, write books, because at some moment there will be a crisis. And then, Milton Friedman said this, everything depends on the ideas that are lying around, right? So have we done our homework? 
And then in the crisis, these ideas can suddenly rise to the surface and change the world. And this is what happened. So this small group of very determined people, they did change the world. And so when then came Reagan and Thatcher came on the scene and we started privatizing everything and unions were pretty much destroyed in many parts of the world and we saw inequality go up, et cetera, et cetera. I think the problem with 2008, with the financial crash, is that the homework wasn't done. So here we had another crisis, but especially you know politicians on the left and progressives, they only knew what they were against, right? They were against the, uh, the establishment and against austerity and against racism and against homophobia. And, I mean, I'm against all those things, but you also have to know what you're for, right? I always like to say that Martin Luther King, he didn't say, I have a nightmare, right? He had a dream. He didn't know where he wanted to go, right? And this is exactly what we need right now. And, and this is also why I'm a bit more hopeful for the future and, and with this crisis, because I think that now we have done our homework and there are new ideas lying around. In this country, there's certainly some noise about, you know, we're isolated geographically and supply chains down to Australia are very, very tenuous. And we've suddenly realized how at risk we are and how ill-prepared we are to deal. I think mm. there was some research that came out that said if shipping had to stop, we'd have enough liquid fuel to last us two months. Wow. And that means the food supply to a lot of the country stops. You know, that's a terrifying place to be. And so there's been a lot of talk around about electrification and energy independence just for that. Do you think the homework's been done? Do you think the ideas are there? And if so, which ones do you think rise to the surface? Okay, a couple of things. So we all have heard the name of the French economist Thomas Piketty, right? He sort of started doing his work like 20 years ago. And he came up with sort of the first calculation of how much the 1% owns in France, and he also did later calculations for the United States. And that academic work actually became the later basis for the Occupy Wall Street movement slogan that said, we are the 99%. Then even years later, in 2014, Thomas Piketty became the, the rock star economist, right? Became really famous around the globe with his big book that no one has read. Well, I did actually. I think I'm one of the 10 people who actually read it. <laughs> but it looks good on the bookshelf as well. <laughs> He's just one great example of, of a guy that has come sort of out of the margins and now has moved into the mainstream. 20 years ago, if you were an economist and you studied inequality, most of your colleagues would say, well, that, that's, you don't do that. You know, you don't focus on that. that is, uh, that's not what we do as a, as a profession, right? So, but now it's become really mainstream. There are so many other examples. There's this great economist, Mariana Mazzucato. She's an Italian economist who's shown that actually most real innovations, most breakthrough innovations, they don't come from the private sector, but actually from the public sector. We so often tend to think about, oh, the Elon Musk of this world or the Steve Jobs, they are the real job creators, they are the innovators, et cetera, et cetera. But if you look at you know, the actual innovations themselves, uh, where does it come from? It comes from the government. So my favorite example is the iPhone. It's actually the example that Matsukato gives. Every sliver of fundamental technology in this thing, so the touchscreen, uh, the battery, the voice recognition system, internet, mobile technology, everything in there that makes it a smartphone instead of a stupid phone has been invented by researchers on the government payroll. And then Apple takes all those innovations and makes a great product. And great, I'm happy with my iPhone. But then please pay taxes, right? How can you take all these innovations that have been funded by the government and not pay your taxes, right? That's just piracy. So this is a story that is very important to tell. And, and, and policymakers around the globe, you know, she's a really a rock star. She's going to Davos every year as well. And... Um, I think that's also what we're realizing right now, that actually the small governments 
are doing a terrible job right now in you know in the COVID-19 crisis and it's actually the more robust stronger governments that are actually protecting their populations so this is another thing where another example where the tide is turning I think the tax thing is is most definitely interesting in in this country for sure because there's a lot of a lot of mineral wealth in Australia and some of those companies don't pay their share however mm-hmm. most definitely use the infrastructure of the roads the rail in fact demand roads and rail and ports mm-hmm. get put in and we mentioned earlier that uh, economists and politicians they use the obfuscation and the complexity of what they do as a way mm-hmm. as a barrier to entry to like don't fuck with it you, it's too complicated for you don't don't fuck with it how can we just as people how can we compete that like if i don't pay more taxes i'm in trouble like mm-hmm. that, that's, that's only a you know a couple of tens of thousands of dollars but if someone doesn't pay a couple billion dollars in taxes no one's putting them in prison yeah yeah you know? yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a real hap- hypocrisy here i mean be angry that helps a lot for a long time for years there was hardly any attention going to any of this and so there was no progress made either in the past couple of years Lots of people have gotten really angry about it, you know, and a lot of people are writing and, and, and speaking about it. And now we are actually making progress. So, for example, Switzerland used to be this big tax paradise, but bank secrecy is pretty much gone in Switzerland because the, the, the U.S. cracked down on them in that respect. So if sort of the powerful countries of the world, you know, the Western countries, the European Union, the U.S. would sort of collectively say to all the small tax paradises, just stop doing it stop being a tax paradise, it will be over in a minute. It will be over in a minute. It's really a matter of political will there. But I'm also optimistic because this is one of the strange ironies. There's almost a, a law here. The angrier we are about something, the better it is actually already going. Because five years ago or six years ago, no one was talking about tax paradises and it was terrible, right? So there was a huge amount of tax evasion going on. Now we're much more angrier And so people have the feeling that the problem has gotten worse in the past five years, but it's actually the opposite. Because we worry about it more, we're actually making progress. You mentioned at the start of a conversation the the concept that when you assume the best of other people, Mm -hmm. what you assume of other people is what you'll get for them. Mm -hmm. I guess that this scales out to a corporation, to a big company. You mentioned Apple. What Mm -hmm. you assume from Apple is what you'll get from them. So if we assume that they will take advantage of all these tax laws, that's what they will do. How can we then scale that up to a big company like them or Exxon or, you know, one of these big mining companies here in Australia? How can we assume the best of some of these companies and expect that that's what we'll get back? Hmm. I think there's a difference here between what you assume of people and of companies, right? Companies, they always make the argument that, look, we're working in a a competitive world where if I suddenly start paying all my taxes and my competitor don't, you know, I'm in trouble. And there's some truth to that here. So I think what you really need to change something there is to have a, yeah, significant political change and significant political revolution and and a lot more attention to these kind of problems. But as I said, you know, we're already actually making quite a bit of progress. The OECD is sort of a big think tank for rich countries. Now has this whole program that is all about tax evasion. Economists, Gabriel Zucman, for example, he's another French economist who's one of the experts internationally about taxes. They're now politicians around the globe listening to the advice of these guys. And that's very different from 10 years ago. So there is some good ground and good reasons for hope here. What are some signs that we might be seeing those political changes that you just mentioned? What are some things that we should be looking for? One issue in the world of taxation is that your income is taxed more and more 
And what you actually own is taxed less and less. So the taxes on capital are way too low. And if you continue doing that, then at some point your economy starts breaking down because people are like, you know, why you still work? Because the taxes are so high and sort of collecting the rent on what you already own becomes more profitable. All governments around the world, world realize that at some point we have to turn this around. So the taxes on income have to go down. You have to sort of make sure that people actually benefit from, you know, working an additional hour. So the taxes on property have to go up, especially on those, on the multimillionaires and the super rich. Now, the problem with taxing labor is that, you know, it can't easily go away, right? People are, they live somewhere in a, in a, in a country, but a capital, it can easily go around the globe, right? Then it's in Australia, then it's in Switzerland, then it's, you know, in the Bahamas or something like that. So basically, Governments just have to do that. They just have to think about how to control capital because otherwise they, you can't fund the whole thing anymore at some point because just inequality becomes too big and capital starts sort of guzzling up everything, right? And there, there's nothing left for the rest of us. You're a guy that you're, you not only read incredibly dense economic <laughs> mm-hmm. assessors of, of the world, you clearly think about the world a lot. How do you personally? How do you deal with it when you're having a when you're having a rough day? Surely, at some point, Rutka, you you pick up something, you read an article, and you just go, "Fuck me," you know? Yeah. How do you how do you deal with it? What do you do to take care of yourself? Well, I, I mean, there's a lot of consolation to be found in history. One of the things you realize when you study history is that actually things used to be worse, much worse. Right? So we've made incredible progress in the past thirty to forty years. We are richer. We are healthier. We are uh, safer than ever, you know, if you look at how peaceful the, the world actually is today, uh, violence has been going down, the amount of war deaths, people killed in wars has been going down for decades now. So there's a lot of ground for optimism here. And um, if, if people don't, don't hear that, it's because they've watched too much of the news. I mean, that's one of my main, maybe one of my most important messages is stop following the news, right? Throw your television out of the window. It's much better to listen to podcasts in that regard. You know, to just to help you to zoom out and to see what, what's actually going on. The news is always about exceptions, about things that go wrong, about corruption, about violence, about terrorism, etc. And psychologists even have a term for this. You know, they talk about mean world syndrome. People who have watched too much of the news, they become more cynical, more depressed, etc. And they think, you know, nothing's ever going to work. So it's really like this dangerous drug that 90% of the population is consuming. Just imagine that today the news would be invented and it would come on the market and, you know, government would ask scientists, you know, can we allow this on the market or is it too dangerous? Well, they would study the effects, cynicism, uh, depression, anxiety. They would say, no, we can't. <laughs> We can't allow this, right? But here we are. Everyone's consuming it. Which is not, I mean, the news is not the same as journalism, obviously. I mean, there's a lot of good journalism out there that helps you to zoom out and understand the world and, you know, sort of the structural forces that govern our lives. But this daily barrage of all the nasty things that are going on in the world, just ignore it. Don't don't follow it. It's not good for you. It is such an addictive drug, though, because it tickles that part of your brain that we mentioned earlier. We might be the descendants of the most friendly people. Ruka, we're also the descendants of the most frightened people because people who ran away from the snake before the other guy, we survived. So it tickles that part of our brain that makes us feel like we're doing something, like that we're being vigilant, we're we're watching out for danger, you know, and it does tickle that part of our brain. And this is one of the biggest problems with the good and the kind and the friendly is that often it's seen as boring. Lord of the Flies, the novel by William Golding that's about kids that shipwreck on an island and 
basically become monsters. You know, at the end of the novel, three of the kids are dead. And the, the message of the novel is, you know, this is just what we are, right? Deep down, we're all animals, monsters. And civilization is only a thin layer. So for this book, I wondered, has it ever happened? You know, has it ever happened in real life that kids shipwrecked on an island? Well, it turns out, yes. In 1966, six Tongan kids shipwrecked on a small island. And uh, it's the happiest still you can ever imagine. You know, they're still friends up until this day. Actually, this morning, I had a Zoom call with all of them because uh, all of Hollywood now wants to make a film out of this. And we were sort of trying to decide together, you know, what the best party to work with uh, would be. But it's pretty much the opposite. Now, I'm not saying that it's a scientific experiment, obviously, but it is the only example that we know of in history that in real life, real kids shipwrecked on an island and uh, if, if it would be like a fictional movie, people would say, this is worse than love, actually. You know, this is so unrealistic. This is so sentimental and naive. But here we are. It's a real story. I know you, you will do this. And I, I have a fair idea just by reading the work that you've already written about this particular story. But my wife being from Fiji mm-hmm. and having spent a lot of time in the Pacific Islands myself, it would be an extraordinary opportunity to, to tell the world about the Pacific Island story and there, you mentioned Easter Island and colonialism. It would be an extraordinary, particularly Tonga. Tonga's yeah. a tricky one, man. I've been there. It's a strange place. Still feudal. It's 2020. It's still a feudal country. Mm-hmm. It's a weird, weird place. And this has been very important for me as well. You know, what happens is you write a story like this and it goes totally viral. You know, I think there's like seven or eight million views of the piece on The Guardian. And then all these film companies approach you. Like, who do you want to sell the rights to? And I felt from the beginning, obviously, I wrote about the story. I'm, I mean, I'm not the first one. I'm the first one who wrote about it in a way that it goes viral. But people have been telling it to each other for decades in, in Tonga and in the Pacific. But I'm, I mean, it's not my story. So uh, what's been really exciting in the past couple of weeks is that sort of we managed to bring everyone together. So there are four of the kids are still alive today. Wow. And uh, it was this amazing moment that, you know, they were on a Zoom call together again and spoke and prayed in Tongan. And Peter Warner, the captain who rescued them and is still friends, soulmates with one of the boys, one of the survivors, his name is Mano. Uh, he was on the Zoom call as well. And they all they all agreed. So we made a, made a collective decision. And that was, that was really, uh, to be honest, it was one of the highlights of my, my career so far. Because human beings, we are the stories that we tell ourselves. And for centuries, we've been telling each other very cynical stories about who we are. And I think it's time for a different story. So I hope this is going to be huge. Well, you wouldn't just make this up. In your book, you've used so many examples in history to argue that case. And it's a very strong argument because it is so tempting. It's so tempting to have that negativity bias and believe the worst in people. But when Mm -hmm. you actually look at the health outcomes of our lives right now, the safety of our lives right now, infant mortality, whatever it is, death rates, crime rates, whatever it is, it's the greatest time in history to be alive, even though we're in a pandemic. Mm -hmm. And that's really hard to understand. Yeah. Because it's so easy to want to believe that everything's shit, everything's awful, and there's no hope. Yeah, exactly. But it's not real. No. And, and it, what I like about the word hope that you use is that hope impels us to act, to do something. Hope is not the same as optimism. Optimism is about, you know, things will be all right. You know, we're healthier, we're wealthier than ever. You know, don't worry about the future. Everything's going to be awesome. We don't know that for sure, right? There are real worries. 
when you think about climate change and what we're doing to the planet. I mean, it is perfectly imaginable that also this crisis will lead us down a dark path. You know, we've seen what's happening in the US, what's happening in Hungary that has now basically become a dictator. Viktor Orban using these uh, sort of the emergency law to grab even more power. So you got to be realistic there. This could lead us down a dark path. But there's also good reason for hope. And yeah, what I really like about hope is that it impels us to act, to do something and not be lazy. Mate, I cannot thank you enough for the time that you've uh, you spent with me today. You're a very, very busy man, <laughs> but I'm super grateful that you made this opportunity to speak with us today. Please go and have a beautiful bicycle ride on those glorious, glorious, <laughs> glorious bicycle parts of the Netherlands. I miss them so much. I will. I used to do this ride, uh, Ronde Polders, I think it was. Mm-hmm. It was like a, a 100K loop north up through e- Edom and all that kind of thing oh, and out to Harlem yeah. and out to Harlem and back in. I'll just do that in the daytime. And I just, man, I was like Don Quixote hunting windmills, but then. Well, I look forward to coming back to Australia as well. I must admit, I was there in 2017, you know, Mate, to, to research the story that I, that I just talked about. And, uh, it was so wonderful. You know, when to, went to Canberra, right? That's, yeah. I always want to say Canberra, but Canberra and to Melbourne and Sydney and Brisbane. And uh, yeah, it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. Well, mate, uh, please do join us uh, when you drop in. It'd be lovely to see you. Uh, and again, thank you so much for your time, Ruka. Have a cracking day there in the Netherlands, all right, brother. Take care, all right? Thanks. And ladies and gentlemen, that was Rutger Bregman. Oh, my goodness. Oh, man. The book is great. The book is called Humankind, A Hopeful History. It's out now. His previous book in English is called Utopia for Realists, The Case for a Universal Basic Income, Open Borders and a 15-Hour Workweek. Get into it. We have an extraordinary opportunity right now to rebuild how our society and our culture works as we rebuild our economy, getting your head around these systems and you know, the stuff that Ruka was talking about, the possibility of even coming close to that kind of change would be um, probably not a bad thing because what was happening, well, we could all see where that was going. Anyway, thanks heaps for listening. Thanks for being a part of it. If you dug the show, send us your email at gmail.com is where you can find me. Please leave a rating and a review over on that, um, what's it called? <laughs> iTunes, that really helps. Uh, that really helps me. And please subscribe and follow where you can. Thank you very much to Andy Marr, my audio producer that pulled all this together. Rachel Barrett, the, my show producer. If you don't follow Rachel on Instagram, you simply must. Far out, man. She's, she's a crack. I adore her. She's super, super great. Thanks very much to Mike Mills for making all the music. Hayley Van Spanier on the socials. Audrey, my beloved wife. She and I had a brilliant conversation today uh, as we, we drove to Wollongong today. And, uh, geez, we had a good chat talking about the new Dave Chappelle piece, 846. Fuck, it was good, man. And I'm just so lucky that I'm married to a woman that, you know, I can have those kind of conversations with because, yeah. She's good, man. Uh, she's great. And a big special extra thanks to Hermione at Bloomsbury Press, uh, Rutger's publisher, who, between her and Rachel, the two of them managed to work some extraordinary magic to get Rutger and me in the same place at the same time on the internet for an hour in two different time zones on other sides of the world. And um, it was no mean feat. And so thank you all so much. Go and get that Rutger Bregman book. Do it. You'll feel better for it. Now's a good time to read it. Trust me. If you need anything, you know where to find me. Send us your email at gmail.com. I'll talk to you on Friday. Until then, sleep well, dream of beautiful things. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.